scripture. Father, I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of you and Perhai, to be encouraged in their decision to stay in Kiev, Ukraine, and pastor the church at Lighthouse and keep serving the seminary at Kiev Theological Seminary, even though there are wars and rumors of wars. I pray that you would cause our precious sister, Sandy's heart, to be encouraged by a mighty word from the Lord that steadies her as the waves of grief billow over her. I pray that you would prepare every one of us in the hearing of my voice for the day of our death. Dying well is what we're all doing here. I pray that you would cause the word of God to run on in triumph with such effectual power that no one can resist it as it penetrates the soul and gives life where there was only death. I pray that you would unify us around the glory of Christ. I pray that you would launch us with zeal, not just to Reynosa, Mexico, like the LCA team will go out from here today, this end of this service, but also that we would go to our neighbors and to the nations with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ in these days when almost nobody brings good news anywhere. Would you help me in my weakness? In fact, I boast in my weakness so that if anything good comes out of this challenging chapter, it will owe only to the spirit of the living Christ. Get all the glory for yourself, O God. Deposit to us all the joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When you are in an argument with a friend over politics, must you always prove yourself right and the other wrong? If you happen to be in a disagreement with your spouse, is it necessary to always get your way and not the other's? Among Christian friends, if you've been wronged, must you either wrong in return or turn a stern face away? When you're in the right, do you always have the right to destroy your enemy? Or is there such a thing as love for your enemies? Jesus said, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to the one who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back, and as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. Luke 6, 27 through 31. My hope in this message out of 1 Samuel 26 is that you would see with me David loving his enemies. David loving his enemies. You'll see it on display, and I'm sure that you will not only see how David loves his enemies, but in this word of Scripture Paul just read, we will be drawn, we will be strengthened, we will be taught, and we will be transformed into enemy lovers like our Savior, Jesus Christ, is an enemy lover. 
Here's the big theme that I've drafted over my understanding of 1 Samuel 26. The chosen kings and queens of God reveal their true nature by loving their enemies. That's the main point. The chosen kings and queens of God reveal their true nature by loving their enemies. May we be a people so enthralled with God, so satisfied in his love, that we are, like Jesus Christ, eager to show love to our enemies. Eager to show love to our enemies. No other religion calls for this. No other religion calls for such a joyful satisfaction in God that it results in love for one's enemies. But Christianity, biblical Christianity, it's one of the most compelling teachings Jesus ever delivered. It's in part, how he proves himself to be God because it takes God to talk like this and it takes God to achieve it inside human hearts. Love for enemies marks King David. We saw that two chapters ago when he was only willing to cut off the corner of Saul's robe. But here we get a deeper, sweeter, clearer insight into David and the kind of person he is and what drives him so that it might be true for you and me too. So that we might be driven to love our enemies. We're not just following King David. We're not disciples of King David. (laughs) We're disciples of the son of David. Not King David. David is a complex creature. He's a man with a checkered past. He's a man with a checkered future, quite frankly. We look through David like a lens to see Christ in David. And you will see Christ in this chapter through King David, though King David is himself not a sinless man. In fact, far from it. He models godly faith for us. And in those times, we can look through David and see beautiful things about Christ. And we'll do that today. But there are also times when he demonstrates sinful and godly, ungodly and unwise choices You noticed, maybe, I didn't spend any time on it, but you certainly noticed that David now is a brand new newlywed. He just married Abigail. And surely, Abigail is a tremendous benefit and godly help to David. Her name is, my father is Joy, and surely she has brought joy to David. David is uh, confident. You can see that in this chapter. Uh, he's, he's filled with grace. He's got grace and he's giving grace to Saul. There's beautiful things going on in David's life. But did you notice he also took a second wife at the end of chapter 25? Huh? Ahinoam of Jezreel also became his wife. Didn't anybody tell David that polygamy is always a bad idea? Besides a great dishonor to both of these women, polygamy dishonors God. Always. Who ordered marriage from the beginning. It's not Adam, Eve, and Genevieve. It's Adam and Eve. Come on, David. Yet on display in the complex, sin-tainted life of David, we see this wonderful, mysterious, otherworldly, God-originating Love for his enemies. It's a Christ-like quality. In fact, we'll see over and over how it seems, and this is a new and fresh discovery for me out of 1 Samuel 26, how it seems like every time Jesus preaches or teaches on enemy love in the Gospels, it's almost like he's preaching this passage. I never saw that before. 
It's important to notice that in the book of 1 Samuel, Saul starts out as a mighty king with God's help and in rebellion and sin, he declines all the way through nearly to the end of the book where we are now, where he's coming almost to the rock bottom of his life where he has rebelled and rejected God's overtures and mercy and kindness so many times repeatedly that Saul is almost at the very bottom of his spiritual existence. Yet at the same time, a small and young shepherd boy has matured and grown. He's endured many difficult things and he's trusted in God. He's a man after God's own heart. And that phrase describing David will be unpacked with powerful clarity here in this chapter. This is where you see what it's like to be a man after God's own heart. And David is rising and rising in spiritual maturity and grace. You've heard the phrase, hurt people hurt people. Carry it all the way through to its biblical conclusion. Graced people, grace people. David has been so lavished by the grace of God that he has an abundant overflow of grace for others. If you find your heart lacking in genuine grace for other people, Ask yourself this, have I received grace from God for myself? You can see how wide this chasm is between Saul and David. Saul, two chapters ago, had said, I sinned. You're the better man. You won, David. And yet, just two chapters later, He hears at the beginning of 1 Samuel 26 that David's out in the wilderness. And it seems to Saul like he just needs to get his fly swatter and go smack a flea. Or get his 12-gauge and go bag a few birds. Can't help himself. He puts together another army and he chases his irrational penchant for murder and anger against David right back into the wilderness. And in the wilderness... Saul is indeed. David rides high on the joys of repentance, his new wife, a godly woman. He's enjoying being a husband. She has a far better husband than she had before. She was a widow, and now she's married to David, the present and future king of Israel. And she, a very godly and wise woman, as is abundantly clear, they are each other's equal and meant for each other. How great is God's grace to David. And then on display, we will see God's grace through David overflow to Saul. And Saul appears, at least on the outside, to repent. But we see by the chapters that follow, Saul has not, in fact, repented at all. What I want us to focus on in our time before we commission off the LCA short-term missions team is four aspects of the love one has for one's enemies. What's its origin? What's its act? What's its aim? And what's its reward? Four words. Origin, act, aim, and reward. Here's how I flesh out those four words in four observations I make through this chapter on loving our enemies. First, loving our enemies begins or has its origin with the fear of the Lord. You'll see that. Two, loving our enemies leads out in acts of truth-telling, speaking the truth. Third, loving our enemies aims at pure-hearted worship before God. 
And fourth, loving our enemies receives the Lord as our reward. Let's look at these each. Look at verse 6 with me. Verses 6 through 12. David has found Saul in an encampment where his commander, Abner, and the other men are surrounding Saul to protect him. Saul is sleeping, and he has a spear and a jar of water to wash himself in the morning right by his head. And David, in his boldness, is almost, if you notice, turning the tables. He's not just running away from Saul. He and his commander, Abishai, sneak into the camp while they're sleeping. There's a boldness in David. There's a power and and a confidence and a faith at work in David. Look at verse 6. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruai, who will go down with me into the camp of Saul? And Abishai said, I'll go down with you. You have to be careful of those people who volunteer first. Because Abishai wants to kill Saul. That's all he wants to do. He says, I'll run him through. I won't hit him twice with his own spear. Sounds like a really good thing to do. Kind of feels like it could satisfy fleshly revenge, but it's not God's will. Verse 7, so David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. It's important that you notice they lay around him. That's a strategic military structure for how kings at that time would sleep. Nobody can get to me because I'm completely surrounded by all these other guys who are sleeping with one eye open and their hand on their spear. So funny. They're all completely conked out. Divine sedation. Then none of them get up. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. You just have to be so careful of two zealous people who speak Too much about God. Like right now, just be careful about what I'm saying. Test it against God's word. So I'm not your Abishai. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear and I will not strike him twice. There's all kinds of people who talk for God as if all they need to do is pick up a spear and run somebody through, isn't there? It's everywhere in the culture and it's evil. We don't need more Abishais. Not on social media, not in the White House, not in any place of civil authority, not on the radio, not on television. We don't need more Abishai saying, just get a bigger spear and run them through. You can't talk enough about God to make that the right answer. Like before David's friends... God's hand in placing Saul before David is, in fact, the work of God putting Saul in a vulnerable position before King David. Before, it was in the cave. Saul was relieving himself. Here, Saul is asleep. And we'll see in just a moment, he is completely melatonin sedated by God. Abishai misreads God's will and God's ways. David does not. Would be so much easier, wouldn't it, if... David would have just nodded his head and gave a tweak with his head and Abishai would have taken the spear out of the ground, run Saul through, and then David could go back to Israel and he wouldn't have to be uh, an exile anymore and he wouldn't have to be running anymore and he could easily uh, show that God has anointed him to take over the kingdom and immediately he would move into the palace. David is far too godly for that. 
far too holy, far too seeking of the Lord's favor, far too eager to worship God, to receive his reward, to speak God's truth, and to have the fear of the Lord drive him than to simply seize the kingdom in the flesh that way. Look at verse 9. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David says, You and me would be guilty before God if we killed God's anointed king Saul. What if everybody said, as soon as I open my mouth to talk about politicians, I'm not going to sin against them because they have been put in place by God. The Bible talks about evil emperors and kings and leaders in humble and careful and very protected ways. So must all persons who read the Bible and live in the ways and heart of God. It doesn't take one ounce of the Holy Spirit to criticize bad leadership. Verse 10, David said, as the Lord lives, he takes an oath. And look at what David's confidence is. The Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down the battle, into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. From this event, I conclude what causes David to show such mercy in not killing his enemy Saul, but just taking his spear and his wash water. Saul put all his power in his military might. He doesn't have even that coveted spear of his. He's powerless. He doesn't even have water to wash himself in the morning, so he's dirty, dirty and powerless. That's where Saul is left. David is being merciful and kind, even showing love to his enemy, and he does so, did you notice, because he has this massively high view of God. He says, God might do to Saul what he did to Nabal. He just took him with a stroke or something similar. His days might come to an end. The days that David will tell us in two different Psalms are written in God's book before there's even one of them. Those are the days that might end for Saul. His God-anointed, God-ordained plan from before time might come to its conclusion. Or God might ordain that Saul go down into battle and the battle go against him and he die in battle, which is exactly what happens. The point to be observed is that the fear of this supreme, glorious, powerful, high, exalted, absolutely sovereign hand of God causes David to fear the Lord. And that fear of the Lord is the beginning of his love for his enemies. David has this high view of God and God has the absolute power and, and right to do with Saul's life whatever he wants, which means he knows God has the absolute right to do with me, David, anything God wants, and therefore I put my hand over my mouth and I will not lift my spear or weapon against God's anointed. I think it works like this. 
I think people with a very high biblical view of God realize that he has in his book appointed an end to all of our lives. He has, in fact, appointed the means, whether it be disease or war or something that we might call an accident, which heaven calls incidents, where our life comes to an end, and then that's this life, brief and vaporous as it is, then there is the going into the waiting of our bodies in the ground, our spirit with the Lord if we're a believer, and then comes a judgment, and after that final judgment, the scripture says, there is a separating of sheep and goats, those to eternal life, the sheep, those to eternal destruction, the goats. And David says, I don't really know fully what the place of the dead is like. I don't know fully what Sheol is like. I don't know fully what judgment is like. But God is the only one who is holy and righteous and pure and just to be able to condemn all to their rightful place. Wherever he judges we go, that's the right place for us to go. For the judge of all the earth shall do right. And he imagines Saul coming before God and receiving his just desert from God on some future day of judgment. And he says, I'm not going to do or say anything that's going to try to take the place of God being Saul's judge, nor am I going to do or say anything that causes Saul to increase his guilt before God, nor am I going to do or say anything that increases my guilt before God. It's helpful to awaken love for our enemies when we realize how great and powerful and strong and good and right God is and how long and horrific and painful and just hell is and say, I'm not going to enter into God's business for judging my enemies. They will either pay for their sins in hell for eternity, or they will one day, with their eyes open, come into the full understanding of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they will be saved. And they will be my brother, and I will be their brother, and we will together enjoy the forgetfulness of God of all of our sins. The only person who can hold a grudge against someone and hate their enemy is the person who thinks they have the right to judge, they have to be the one to exact a pound of flesh, and they have to be the one to bring about some kind of justice in the world or it otherwise is not going to happen. But if you believe with all your might, seeing this breathtaking vista of God's glory like David does, Saul's either going to perish because it's his time, he's going to go to war and die, or God's just going to take him. So I commend Saul into the hand of the Lord, says David, and I commend you to put your enemies in the hands of the Lord as well. Let your wonder and joy and beholding of all the glories of God enable you with its origin to cause love for enemies to rise up inside your heart. Without the fear of the Lord, without this vision of God that David shows us, it's impossible to love our enemies. 
The very origin of enemy love is this high and holy sight of the Almighty God, high and exalted upon his throne. Do you see the connections between everything the church is? You find people leaving organized churches. You find young people walking away from organized religion. You find people not even identifying themselves as having any religious affiliation anymore. And one of the good reasons why that trend is true is because so many people, especially in America and in the West, look at the church and say, you people treat your enemies exactly the way I do and the rest of the world does. This high and exalted view of God is the answer for how we can become a different people who actually have something to say to a hurting and sorrowful and grief-laden world laced with pain and disillusionment and frustration and complete disregard for the hypocrisy of the church and of Christians. David goes on and he not only shows the origin of love for his enemy, he shows the act of it. It's sort of funny actually. David is so clever in the message he sends. The act of loving one's enemy is merely speaking the truth in love. Look at how David does it in verses 13 through 16. Then David went over to the other side, stood afar off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called out to the army, okay, they're all sleeping soundly. He has just left the area with Saul's spear and water. And he doesn't address Saul, he addressed the guy who's supposed to protect Saul from him. And to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner, as you can imagine, awoken up, awoken and answered, who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, are you not a man who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over the Lord, the king? You blew it, Abner. That's what David says. Speaks the truth. For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your Lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die, Abner, because you've not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. David points out, in truth, Abner's failure. And he points out that he, David, is unafraid. He's bold. He's going to wake them up from their deep sleep and he's going to declare to them that I, David, am the one who has actually watched over and kept Saul alive while you were all snoring. David speaks the truth. How is that an act of loving one's enemy? Well, speaking the truth in love sets the enemy free. Jesus said so. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The church of Jesus Christ, and you and I as believers, don't need to find ways to hide the truth from people. We need to speak the truth in love. We don't need to find ways to compromise on truth. That isn't setting anyone free, and that isn't loving. We love our enemies best by speaking the truth boldly and clearly and humbly. David speaks the truth in Saul's hearing, and he's directly addressing Abner. Do you remember in Galatians chapter 4, Paul is writing to his beloved Galatian church because they've fallen into the lies of false teachers. He says in 4.16, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Answer to the question, no way, Paul. 
you're loving the Galatians by telling them the truth. It is love to our enemies to tell the truth. It's never helpful to our enemies to kowtow to their falsehoods or their narrative of deception. Friends who love always speak the truth in love. You and I speak the truth in love to one another. We speak the truth in love to our family members. We speak the truth in love to our community around us. And whether it costs us our life or not, may God help us to resolve now to speak the truth in love no matter what the ultimate cost. But you can see not only is the origin of love for one's enemy a high view of God and absolute conviction of his sovereignty, but also David speaks the truth in love, and then we see his heart unfold in front of us. I loved meditating this week on this next paragraph, and actually the next two paragraphs. Look at verse 17. Now Saul is awake. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. Look at the way he talks to his enemy. So sweet. And he said, David talking, why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now, therefore, let my Lord the king hear the words of his servant. David is asking Saul to quit. Quit chasing me. I haven't done anything wrong to you, nor have I done anything evil in the sight of God. And to compel Saul to listen to David, he's holding on to Saul's spear and to his water, and Saul knows it. And so now David, in in love for Saul, this is just breathtaking to see the Christ-like love for Saul in David, he continues in verse 19, If it is the Lord who stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. If you're chasing me, Saul, because the Lord told you to do it, then I'm just going to go to the Lord and I'm going to confess whatever wrong I've done to make him tell you to do it, and he will accept my offering because I know him and he loves me and I love him. And it will be over. In a prayer, this is over if God's the one who started it. But if it's men, may they be accursed before the Lord. If you've been listening to others, or if it's your evil idea, then there's a curse from God down upon you because I know of no wrongdoing that has deserved your treatment of me. Now do you see what's going on? Look at what David reveals here. For they, the people you have duped into Opposing me, Saul, they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. You realize what that meant? It meant for the people of Israel who hated David along with Saul, they basically told him to go to hell. Because if you don't worship in Israel, you don't worship God. You worshiped God on this piece of land. If you got kicked out of this piece of land, you don't get to worship God. Go worship other gods, which means go to your destruction. David running all through the ancient Near East isn't just him on a travelogue. It's him saying, I'm outside of the people of Israel and the place of God's promise. I don't have God's presence. If I die, my blood is spilled on unholy ground. I can't worship 
Hard for us to think that way, isn't it? Because we think we can worship wherever we are. And because of the omnipotence and omnipresence of God and the outpoured Holy Spirit, we can worship wherever we are. We don't worship on addresses or real estate anymore. That wasn't true in David's day. He worshiped where God's temple and people were in the promised land. You can't worship God anywhere else. He goes on in verse 20. And he's pleading with Saul here. I love David's heart. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. See what he wants? He wants to be where the Lord is, and he wants to worship the Lord as the Lord has directed. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. I'm nobody, Saul. I'm nobody. This is such a beautiful picture of how to love your enemies. It's not about me. I am no one. It's about God. And I want to be so right with you the way I treat you, Saul, that my worship of God is not hindered. I want to come back and I want to be with my family and I want my new wife to meet my dad and my brothers and I want to worship on my Judahite, Israelite land and I want to worship God as he's worthy of and deserves. Listen to Jesus from Matthew 5. And as I read this, notice how Jesus makes enemy love and the way we love our enemies as a means to the aim of how we worship. Listen carefully. You'll recognize this. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar... See how it's all about worship? And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. If you find yourself unable to worship God in childlike purity and abandon, if you find yourself feeling like a phony and you don't want to fake it, to open yourself like a happy child worshiping the living God, then ask yourself, is there anybody that you're not loving with enemy love? If you hold anger in your heart toward a person, it will handcuff your holy hands meant to be raised in worship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor in World War II who ultimately was martyred and gave his life for Christ as a prisoner of the Nazi regime, said, In the New Testament, our enemies are those who harbor hostility against us, not those against whom we cherish hostility. For Jesus refuses to reckon with such a possibility. Bonhoeffer says there's no way that you can keep on saying you love God if you've got roiling hatred in your heart for a brother. The Christian must treat his enemy as a brother and requite his hostility with love. His behavior must be determined not by the way others treat him, but by the way and the treatment he himself receives from Jesus. It has only one source, and that is the will of Jesus. The origin of loving one's enemy is a high view of God. The act of it is speaking the truth. The aim of it is worship, pure and childlike, the reward of it is God himself. Look at verses 21 through 25. Again, David continues to open his heart to Saul. Then Saul said, I have sinned. 
Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm. Because my life was precious in your eyes this day, behold, I've acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here's the spear, O king. Let one of your young men come over and take it. Such love for his enemy demonstrated by David here to Saul. David explains his motive and why he's willing and even able to do this. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. Verse 23. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me out of all my tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way. And Saul returned to his place. Saul never chased David again. This was it. Saul's life is nearly over. And David has shown us in this paragraph and the previous what it's like to be a man or woman with a heart for God. David says, I'm driven by the reward of knowing that before the eyes of God, even in the face of my enemies, I acted in righteousness and I acted in faithfulness. For the believer, there is something so precious that even the wicked and unbeliever, uh, unbelievers or even sometimes believers and the wrong they do to us is not more defining and it's not more important and it's not more in, uh, controlling to us than this singular North Pole star of our righteousness in the eyes of God. Like Ron Johnson experienced in his sleep the other night, exiting from this life, And to be absent from this body means to be instantly at home with the Lord. And you have the face of God looking at you and saying, I see in you my righteousness. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. David wants that more than he wants to be king of Israel. He wants that more than he wants a wife. He wants that more than he wants fame. He wants that more than he wants people to sing songs about him. You can tell by how many psalms he writes that David is driven by this high and massive glorious view of God and he'll speak boldly the truth in love and his aim is to worship God and he's written so many psalms describing exactly what that's like. And then he says, what I'm after is I'm after heaven's reward, God himself telling me that my righteousness and faithfulness which he gave me is pleasing in his sight. I want God to find me precious. And I will stand before you this day and tell you, God being my helper, that's what I want to. I want God to find me precious. And I want him to find you precious. I find you infinitely precious. I want God to find you infinitely more precious than any human ever could. The reward for enemy love is this wonderful sense that God is your nearest friend. He's your salvation. He defines who you are. No sin has the power to define you. No past experience has the power to define you. Nobody else's words or curses have the power to define you. No diagnosis has the power to define you. No cultural movement has the power to define you. No cause of justice has the power to define you. God defines you. That's so freeing. Don't you want that? Don't you want that more than you want your next breath? 
Don't you want that for your children and your grandchildren and your parents and your friends? Don't you want that for your enemies? To be freed from all the filth and noise of this world and the darkness and sludge from your heart and say, God, you be my definition. I'm who you say I am. Make it so, Lord. You can see that loving your enemies is not just an, uh, has its aim as worship like Jesus said to us, but here Jesus will say again to us, further in Matthew 5, that there's this reward that we should be driven by. Listen, it's just like Jesus is preaching David. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? You see, he's holding out the desire for a reward. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus holds out the reward of knowing you are a son of the Father when you show love to your enemies. Earlier on in Matthew 5, he said the same. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So you get Moses' portion when you love your enemies. You get Elijah's portion when you love your enemies. What's their portion? Standing beside the transfigured, glorious King Jesus under the glow of the light of his glory. And that glory isn't just a future thing. If you meet somebody who has such a David-like walk with the Lord, complicated, messed up, prone to sin as David is, yet this real living enjoyment of God that's so all-defining, they have the capacity to love their enemies and you just want like crazy to be around that person and be like them in every way. We love others because God first loved us. The only way this happens in a person's life is if you've trusted Christ for salvation. Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection has the power to open our eyes that we love everything about God in the Bible and reject nothing. The cross has the power to cause us to speak the truth in love, in boldness, no matter what the outcome. Those who are saved by the power of the cross have this zeal for worship that is all-centering and all-empowering and all-clarifying and all-healing. The power of the cross, the love of God in Jesus Christ by his death and resurrection has the power to make us fix our incentives and motives and great desires on the reward of heaven. On December 3rd of 2021, police officer Richard Houston, 21-year-old veteran, a 21-year veteran of the Mesquite, Texas Police Department, responded to a domestic disturbance call among three individuals taking place at a local grocery store Officer Houston arrived to find a crazed man wielding a gun with which he eventually shot Officer Houston in the chest and then turned it on himself. Officer Houston died. His assailant survived. Officer Houston was a 46-year-old father of three and husband to his wife, Shelley. 
During his 21-year career on the police force, he was frequently recognized for excellence. He received 48 letters of commendation, two life-saving awards, one police commendation bar, and the Citizens Police Academy Officer of the Month Award in August of 2018. His oldest daughter, who is 18 years old, her name is Shelby. At her dad's funeral at their church, just days after his passing, at a church called Lake Point Church in Rockwall, Texas, she gave the eulogy for her dad. Can you believe it? An 18-year-old standing up and giving the eulogy for her dad? A young man having died in the line of duty as a police officer. Now, listen to the voice of Shelby and wonder with joy about this beautiful thing called love your enemies and what kind of family and what kind of good theology and what kind of life pours into an 18-year-old to make her like this. Shelby's words. I remember having conversations with my dad about him losing friends and officers in the line of duty. I've heard all the stories you can think of, but I've always had such a hard time with how the suspect is dealt with. Not that I didn't think there should be justice served, but my heart always ached for those who don't know Jesus. Their actions being a reflection of that. I was always told that I would feel differently if it happened to me. But as it's happened to my own father, I think I still feel the same. There has been anger, sadness, grief, and confusion. And part of me wishes I could despise the man who did this to my father. But I can't get any part of my heart to hate him. All that I can find is myself hoping and praying for this man to truly know Jesus. I thought this might change if the man continued to live. But when I heard the news that he was in stable condition, part of me was relieved. My prayer is that someday down the road I get to spend some time with the man who shot my father. Not to scream at him or yell at him, not to scold him, simply to tell him about Jesus. I don't need revenge, says I. I don't need wealth. I don't need my reputation fixed. I don't need a pound of flesh from those who hurt me. Why? Because I've got Jesus. He so satisfies me with himself and his heart has become my heart. I've experienced the enemy love of God when he looked into my face as his enemy and saved me with his stunning grace. So how can I, who have received such grace, not grace others with the same? Let's pray. I'm asking, Lord, for me and my wife and my son and his wife and my daughter and for these precious people who I love with words inadequate to say that you would achieve the miracle of causing enemy love to awaken in us. We want to be like Jesus and we want others, even those who seem the furthest from him, to know him. So many questions arise, Lord, and yet so many exciting directions flow out of this observation in 1 Samuel 26. It's no surprise to me that David was a mighty king in Israel, but we 
do not idolize him. We look through him and see you. You are the beginning, middle, and end of all of our love for one's enemies. We love our enemies that way because you loved your enemies that way. So work it in us. Work it in us, Lord. Cause the emotional capacity to well up within us to say, God, if you help me, I will love the person who has done the most to ruin my life. Not to trust them, not to submit to them, but just to love them. Lord, I pray that you would cause this to come to pass in a way fully in line with the beauty of your word and fully in line with the aims that you have to produce in us Christ-like people who, following David's broken but helpful example, love our enemies. Lord, I pray that you would help us now as we as a church rally around this good team that's leaving out to show the love of Christ to orphans and workers in Reynosa, Mexico. I pray that you would bless them richly and give us now the privilege and joy of sending them off in a manner worthy of God. Through Christ I pray, amen. Lakeview Christian Academy is sending off a team as they do every year to Reynosa, Mexico. Team, if you're here, come on forward. Elder